This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Bipartisan lawmakers are looking to implement implement race ranked choice voting, a proposed bill that would have U.S. House and Senate candidates compete in single nonpartisan primaries where the top five candidates would proceed to the general election. Their candidates will be ranked by voters in order of preference. Wisconsin State Senator Jeff Smith said, quote, the bill will improve legislators' accountability to their constituents and incentivize cooperation rather than competition. Smith, a Democrat from Eau Claire, is one of the bill's authors. AP News reports that Maine and Alaska have already adopted ranked choice voting and has proposed in numerous other states. The Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors has approved making Milwaukee County a sanctuary for transgender and non-binary people, reports the Journal Sentinel. In a vote of 12 to 4, the resolution urges the sheriff to have low enforcement priority on any future laws that would criminalize providing for providing or helping someone receive gender-affirming care, such as puberty blockers or hormones. The decision follows a similar move to declare Dane County a sanctuary for trans and non-binary people, passed by the Dane County Board of Supervisors earlier this summer. Dane County was reportedly the first county in the country to pass such a resolution, and the move attracted natural headlines from conservative media. Madison's naked bike ride was mentioned in a high-profile congressional hearing yesterday. During a House Judiciary Committee's hearing of Attorney General Attorney General Merrick Garland, Representative Tom Tiffany of Northern Wisconsin, asked the Attorney General if he approved of the bike ride. WMTV said that Garland responded that it sounded like a question for state and local law enforcement. Dane County Supervisor Jeff Wigan has said, has said he filed an online report with Madison Police after a county resident sent him an email about a nude girl who appeared to be less than 10 years old. Madison Police spokesperson Stephanie Fryer said the police have received a complaint the day after the race of an image of the girl posted on social media. She said a special victims unit is assigned to the case. Some UW-Madison students and instructors were surprised to find out that they, or one of their students, had been enrolled in a data monitoring experiment without the ability to opt out. Learner Activity View for Advisors, or LAVA, is a pilot program that enrolled 2,800 students in order to flag advisors of potential patterns of low academic performance. The university's Department of Information Technology created the program to use data science to improve student learning outcomes. Professors who teach information security at the UW are finding issues with the program, reports the Daily Cardinal. They say the program is unethical without the ability to opt out. And while it wouldn't be approved as an external research study, its internal use could give more flexibility for oversight. Spotty school bus service in the Madison Metropolitan School District has worn thin with a number of parents. They worry that they'll have to drive their children to school themselves in light of the shaky start by first student, the district's bus service provider that replaced Badger Bus at the start of the year. Senate Middle School parent Marley Cronin tells the Capital Times that she tried twice to call Bus Dispatch Center and got no answer. Cronin said the bus's lack of response is, quote, downright dangerous. 
A spokesperson for First Student blames the lapse on a driver shortage and offered that 90% of the routes are on time. This is the first year of a five-year contract that the district has with First Student, replacing former contractor Badger Bus. First Student had previously told the Cap Times that some of the service issues are related to the driver shortage, but more drivers have been recruited and are in training. And after a few months' rain, the Frank Mobile is out and the Reno Mobile is back. The Oscar Mayer mascot had changed its name to the Frank Mobile in May, but the iconic Wiener Mobile is back again after Oscar Mayer's parent company decided that the Frank Mobile was a dog of an idea. The Associated Press reports that Oscar's parent company, Kraft Heinz Corporation, posted Wednesday on Instagram that it was reversing the name change. In making the announcement, the company declared it's been a Franktastic summer. Not Wienertastic, but almost as good. And now on to today's top stories. State legislatures, community organizers, and victims' families gathered at the Capitol today, urging for action on stronger gun laws. Democratic lawmakers have repeatedly proposed a package of bills to reduce gun violence, measures that have consistently faced opposition from the Republican-led legislature. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the story. Over the summer, Democratic state legislators proposed a package of bills with a range of gun policies, including universal background checks and incentivizing the safe storage of weapons. One bill also proposes extreme risk protection orders, or red flag laws, which would allow law enforcement to temporarily take away guns from people a judge has found to be at imminent risk of harming themselves or others. Emotions were high in the assembly parlor today as a coalition of groups convened on the Capitol for a day of action to prevent gun violence. The groups, which included the March for Our Lives, 80% Coalition, and Brady United Against Gun Violence, along with local groups like Focused Interruption and Ford Latino, gathered to urge lawmakers to take action. Marlena Banks was one speaker at today's conference. Her brother was shot and killed while driving, 27 years ago today. She says that her family is still grieving his loss. You would think after so much time that it would get easier, but I'm here to tell you that it does not get easier. You think of, you know, the nieces and nephews I'll never have. My mom thinks of the grandchildren she'll never have. You know, all the memories we'll never make. And it's devastating. He was an innocent um, a victim of just a mistaken identity. Senator LaToya Johnson says that guns are still prevalent in her district on the north side of Milwaukee, with over 15,000 guns recovered from 2018 to 2022. Over 80% of those recovered guns were used in the commission of a crime. Our community is more than just statistics, but the numbers are staggering and the impact deserves mentioning. Representative Sheila Stubbs, a Democrat from Madison, says that the proposed gun regulations transcend politics. Gun reform is, near, is not merely a political issue. It is a public health crisis. According to Everytown for Gun Safety, which tracks gun violence statistics in each state using census data, an average of 678 people die by guns in Wisconsin each year. More than half of those deaths are deaths by suicide. Attorney General Josh Call, also a speaker today, criticized a 2022 state Supreme Court ruling that allows domestic abusers to purchase firearms. So it is now easier than it had been for somebody who committed domestic violence to get a gun. Legislators hope to address that loophole with one of the bills in the package. 
Last April, several Republican lawmakers introduced a bill of their own that would allow teachers and staff to carry concealed weapons. They presented it as a solution to the epidemic of school shootings across the country. Representative Debendraka of Whitefish Bay used to be an elementary school teacher. She says that older Wisconsinites don't understand the emotional impact that lockdowns can have on children. I was going through some of those lockdown drills, and I honestly feel like if everybody had to do that, people my age didn't have to, but if everybody had to experience that, they would take these proposals more seriously. Gun safety proposals from the Evers administration have consistently met roadblocks from the Republican-controlled legislature. In 2019, Governor Evers called the legislature into special session to take up red flag laws and universal background checks, measures that were ignored by Republicans. In May, the Republican-held Joint Finance Committee struck several gun safety measures out of Governor Evers' biennial budget proposal. A 2022 Marquette Law School poll found that more than three-quarters of registered voters are either very concerned or somewhat concerned about gun violence. And the same poll found that since being introduced in 2019, support for gun safety measures hasn't wavered. A consistent 81% of voters support red flag laws, while 79% support mandatory background checks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Federal lawmakers are tasked with coming together on a new government spending plan by an October 1st deadline. Advocates for Wisconsin households with children worry that certain proposals will put more strain on those families, especially if they're impacted by state budget decisions. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Congress is again steeped in a looming budget crisis as lawmakers face a deadline to approve a new government spending plan. In Wisconsin, policy analysts say working families could fall through the cracks if certain GOP proposals go through. Prior to the recent congressional recess, House Republicans had floated ideas such as slashing funding for the Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. Dahi Wolf with the Wisconsin group Kids Forward says the proposed cuts could lead to 71,000 eligible participants in Wisconsin being denied WIC benefits. He warns about creating negative outcomes for these individuals. Every step of the way, obviously, kids and families need support. But if we don't do it early, then we pay for it later. He notes that these budget concerns come as Wisconsin families brace for child care funding woes at the state level. Governor Tony Evers has scheduled a special session in hopes of making permanent a pandemic-related subsidy program. State Republicans recently voted to let it expire. In Washington, Freedom Caucus members say they want tighter spending after feeling ignored in the recent debt ceiling debate. Wolf says other spending proposals would result in 1,000 Wisconsin preschoolers losing access to Head Start and 1,400 young people being left out of job training programs. He says households that rely on these programs don't need any more barriers being put in their way. These are all working people in our state that are working poor because we've refused to raise the minimum wage. We've refused to you know, come up with jobs that pay a living wage and to support you know, families and children. Congress needs to adopt a new spending plan by October 1st to avoid a government shutdown. With deep divisions still in place, including among moderate Republicans and far-right members, There's growing concern a deal won't be reached in time. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Council is in process of potentially repealing a city ordinance that prohibits panhandling. The ordinance and others like it have been largely unenforceable for years since the United States Supreme Court ruled in 2015 that ordinances like it infringe on the right to free speech. Professor Genevieve Lakeer at the University of Chicago Law School has written on the case and why the nation's high court has chosen to interpret it as free speech. This afternoon, she spoke with WORT news producer Faye Parks to share some expert insight on panhandling regulations. Thank you for joining me, Professor Lakeer. Oh, happy to be here. To start, can you walk me through the 2015 Supreme Court case, Reed versus the town of Gilbert? Sure. So that's a case that involves the question of when um, a law that doesn't look like it's doing anything impermissible under the First Amendment, in this case, it was regulating signs in the town, when it should be considered to discriminate on the basis of the content of speech. Because under the First Amendment, as it's understood today, anytime the government discriminates on the basis of the content of speech, courts apply the most rigorous scrutiny. They apply what's called strict scrutiny, and they require the government to show a very compelling need to pass the law. And in most cases, it ends up being held unconstitutional. So basically, are we going to treat the law as presumptively unconstitutional because it's doing this discriminatory thing? Or is it okay and we're going to apply a much more deferential kind of scrutiny? In Reed, the court changed the rules. Up until that time, the thing that courts had looked at primarily to figure out whether the government was discriminating on the basis of content was the purpose of the law. You know, is it targeting a particular speech, particular speakers, because it doesn't like what they say or thinks what they're saying is harmful? If so, you know, that was understood to be discriminatory. In Reed, the court said, no, it doesn't actually matter if the purpose is completely legitimate. In this case, the government is just trying to enact a sign code so that people know where to go and uh, we don't have visual clutter and we have a kind of orderly flow of traffic in the town. Those are all legitimate government interests. The court said because you're discriminating between and among signs based on the message that they're communicating, the purpose is fine, but the enforcement of the law depends upon what people are saying. That makes it discriminatory and therefore strict scrutiny applies. It wasn't about asking for money. It was about the sign code. It it said signs advertising religious events have to be such and such size, small, but signs advertising political events can be bigger. And the court's like, uh, how do you distinguish between a religious sign and a political sign? Well, it just, it just depends on the message of the sign, and therefore you're discriminating against certain messages rather than others. And so in Reed, the court broadens the rule against content discrimination from a focus on solely on the government's purpose to this question about, well, when we're applying the law, are we distinguishing between messages based on their content? And if we are, we are discriminating. It was only in later cases that courts begin to apply this to panhandling laws because, of course, one of the most common features of a panhandling law is you have to define what panhandling is. And usually the way in which governments do so is by saying, well, it's when you ask someone for money or something, you know, you ask for uh, some kind of benefit or some kind of charity. And that looks like now we're saying, well, if you sit on a street corner and you just sing a song, you're not panhandling. But if you sit in the street corner and you say, hey, can you give me a buck? You are panhandling. So now this starts to look a lot like, well, are you distinguishing between religious and political signs? So panhandling is considered an aspect of free speech then? Yes. So for five or six decades, courts has been clear that if you're asking someone for money or engaging, you know, trying to get them to engage in this kind of exchange with you, that is considered protected speech. Yes. So here in Madison, there is a city ordinance prohibiting panhandling still on the books. Though it is unenforceable, the Common Council is considering repealing this ordinance next month. 
Is this something you've seen in other U.S. cities? Yes. I mean, there have been a lot of court cases dealing with the constitutionality of panhandling. And in a number of places, the laws have been struck down. In other places, yes, I think other municipalities have stopped enforcing. So how do these ordinances stay on the books even after the Supreme Court's ruling? I mean, there are two different ways. So one is... Uh, you know, it's interesting to me how often it is the case that there could be a contrary Supreme Court ruling and no one challenges it or no one understands that it's a thing to be challenged. So they can just be, uh, you know, the the, the um, ruling itself only applies to facts that case. It, you have to both be aware of the ruling and then be, there has to be an interest, um, lawyers, <laughs> groups who are willing to challenge the law in order for it to be brought to a court's attention and um, invalidated, unless you have a local municipality that's very responsible and recognizes the conflict. So uh, I think on the one hand, there's just this sort of, it takes a while for the effect, effects of um, Supreme Court rulings to percolate, and sometimes they don't fully. You, there will often be the case that you see laws in the books. I, I come across this all the time. I'm a first amendment per- person. You know, I'll see a law on the books. I'm like, ah, oh, that looks pretty unconstitutional to me. But no one has challenged it. No one is aware, or no one has brought it to a court's attention. And so there you have it. I think the complication here is that it is not the case that every single panhandling law uh, has been struck down after read. So. Um, a number of courts have found that, for example, laws that prohibit aggressive panhandling, use of threat or assault or getting into someone's face, even though it's, they're still content-based, they're still content discriminatory insofar as you're still defining panhandling by the content of the speech, they say, well, the government has a sufficiently compelling interest in banning that because that's really bad for public safety. It can have all these other secondary effects on the quality of the urban environment. And there's really no more narrowly tailored way to achieve, to protect those interests than by telling people... Um, prohibiting panhandlers who engage in that kind of behavior. So these more narrowly tailored anti-panhandling laws have been upheld under strict scrutiny. It's typically the very broad panhandling laws that say no panhandling or no panhandling in this area or no panhandling between you know, 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. or whatever it may be. Those have been struck down. And so it could also be the case that municipalities have panhandling laws on their books because those are still constitutional. Much of the concern surrounding panhandling does have to do with public safety. So people will stand on medians in the middle of busy roads, for example. Is it mm-hmm. still legal to regulate where panhandling is done? Well, again, it just depends if you are regulating in a content-neutral way. If you're saying no one can stand on the median, that, that's not discriminatory because you're saying anybody. You're not depending on it. It doesn't depend on the content of the speech. It's the laws that say only panhandlers may not stand in the median of roads. No, then we're in strict scrutiny. And again, you have to show, well, why are we targeting panhandlers versus others? And is it strictly necessary to protect public safety? In the case here in Madison, because these ordinances are unenforceable, why go to the effort to remove them from the books at all? Well, I see, I, I'm really happy that the, I guess it's the city council, Yeah, because even if it's unenforceable, people who, there's still the law out there. And I think, you know, everyone doesn't always know it's uh, unenforceable. And so I do worry about it still having a chilling effect. Police can still say, hey, you know, there's this law we heard about. Now, maybe it's actually not enforceable if you, by the time you get to court, there's a good, strong First Amendment defense. But I always worry that having a law on the books that is unenforceable still provides some kind of support or um, um, authority for people to act as if uh, they have the right to control this kind of behavior. And so if it's an unconstitutional law, I think we should get rid of it. We should get it off the books. Now, that's just my opinion. There's lots of unconstitutional laws that are still on the books that no one has actually repealed them. And I would love um, somebody to do a study and think of the actual effects of repealing versus simply just not enforcing. 
Uh, but I don't think it's a crazy position to say, you know, this is unconstitutional. This um, uh, inhibits the free speech rights of our uh, citizens. Let's just get rid of it. You mentioned uh, confusion among policing. This could end up being a policing issue as well if it's not repealed? To the extent that the police are, and typically they are, right, they're, they're, they're enforcing the panhandling regulations. Um, I'm not sure whether the police have a perfect grasp of the constitutionality and unconstitutionality of the laws. If it's on the books, police are being asked to enforce it or being asked to enforce the relevant rules and laws. Yeah, I think uh, uh, these, are, these often end up being policing issues. I could see how this could also be an issue of, you know, money talks. Um, you mentioned that things don't necessarily change unless people are willing to find legal resources, get representation, and that's often just mm-hmm. unaccessible to panhandlers. Do you have any thoughts yes. on that? Yes, I think it's a real problem. In the cases where we've seen the challenges to panhandling laws, they have been brought on behalf of, uh, they've been brought by nonprofit organizations that are acting on the behalf of the panhandlers. If we think about a group that is, you know, very poorly positioned to represent themselves effectively in court. This is a, like this is a prime example. Um, and so this is why I would imagine in many places there are panhandling laws that haven't been challenged, still are out there. And in cases where there is, say, discriminatory enforcement, where, for example, like this is an unconstitutional law, but it's still being used as a basis for rounding someone up and bringing them in or for getting them to move, who is going to challenge that? Who's going to know that? And so it does seem safer just to get it off the books. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Professor. Sure. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. In this week's Out of the Box, it has another excerpt from DJ Payne One's interview. The successful Beatmaster talked with host D-Star about the benefits of building your skills, and not just the musical ones. A lot of musicians who start out, like, I'm trying to be a rapper, I need to hit this pinnacle. They don't even realize there are steps. And once you start taking those steps and you start really celebrating your smaller wins, I got my first paid show. It was only $100. Great. Scale it up. That's amazing. But celebrate that. You go in my studio, you see that frame. I got a $20 bill in that frame. That $20 bill means more to me than just that $20 because that was the first actual money that I made from my company. You have to do stuff like that. We were selling CDs hand-to-hand in the streets, and it was like, if I made $50 in a night, I felt amazing because oh, that was my music. I did that. I built that. That's my creative intellectual property. I'm monetizing it. Oh, my God, this is amazing. Now, all I have to do is scale it up. It took some time, but if I compared myself to Dr. Dre every day that I woke up, I'd be paralyzed. I wouldn't get out of bed. Right. And so I really I hope the people watching this don't do that to themselves. Focus on getting one fan and then go to two, go to three. We're always talking about climbing the ladder. It's one rung at a time. We have all these metaphors, right? And we don't follow any of them. Let's start by setting realistic goals. Set short-term goals, set long-term goals, but law of detachment, right? Like for me, you might think that first big opportunity is going to change your life forever. I had to pivot so many times. I know people in the music business that started out as rappers and like, I want to be a rapper. And they failed at that, but now they're successful as managers or they're successful as producers or someone who became a producer and and then didn't do that very well, but now they're an A&R. You're working in the field that you dreamed of working in. And that was one of the things they told us too. They were like, okay, we're going to go around the room. What are you going to school here to do? So everybody went around and said what they was going to do. 
nine times out of 10, what you are going to school to do right now is not what you're going to probably end up doing when you graduate as far as like in the entertainment industry, because it just doesn't work that yep. way. You get in where you fit in. This door might open up a bunch of doors and you be like, hey, man, I, I actually like that. Or you might get an opportunity and they say, hey, we want you to be a road manager. One of my professors was a Eminem's road manager, and he was a Dr. Dre's road manager. He was a 50 Cent road manager. And he was like, man, I started off doing something completely different. Then he got to become the road manager for the biggest act in the world, which was YouTube at the time. He didn't start that way. It was like J. Cole was a producer. And he was a producer. Now look at him, right? But um, what was crazy was he actually quit being a professor and went back on the road. He got a call and said, hey, we want you to come back on the road. Uh, we want you to be some big name group road manager. And do you, do you want to do it? He's like, yeah. It helps to have different abilities, too. Right. I mean, you, you provide value. I think a lot of people, too, are afraid of pivoting or they're afraid of expanding. Because it's like, I love doing this. I love writing music. Okay, but maybe you could do this over here and help yourself. I learned video to help myself. It's like, oh, YouTube. I can make my own videos for myself and, you know, create this brand for myself. And that helps. And I know people who did the same way. And then now they're shooting music videos for other people, making money that way. Yeah. When I was in college, um, you know, I was like music, 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 you know. Yeah. So I went there to be an engineer. And then my best friend was going to school for uh, video motion graphics. So he's like, man, you know, let me teach you how to work this camera. So I went out, bought a camera. He taught me how to work the camera, right? So I was like, I'm thinking in my mind, well, maybe I can go and do something that I used to see Raphael doing, Riff Raff. Shout yeah, the out DVDs to him. and all that in the movies. I'm thinking, well, you know, he started off, he was just in a club. He was the cameraman in the club. So he would set up a backdrop. People would come in front of it. He'd take a picture. Yep. He'd come out and, you know, charge him 10, 15 bucks for it. I'm thinking I can do that while I'm going to school. I could be doing that for money on the side. And got to learn a little bit about the camera. And then I started taking some pictures and then opportunity opened up for me to do product photography mm -hmm. so now i'm taking pictures of little cell phone clips but i'm getting paid for yeah. it you know so now i got that on my resume then I, I start taking pictures of my kids and then i turned that into a photography business so now i'm charging people to take pictures of their kids and you know now so i was like okay cool so i start doing that and then my buddy's teaching me how to edit videos so now i'm doing videos for people i got a bunch of different little weapons i can use to help i can yeah. bring value to pretty much any situation when it comes to entertainment. I can get on a set and be like, oh man, we need somebody to run sound. I can. Oh, we need somebody to take pictures. I can. Oh, we need somebody to, you know, hold a camera. I can. You know what's you beautiful know? about that too? Back to the original question. So if you're an artist and you're building up your career, the more you know, the stronger your team is when you finally select them. If you don't know anything about the music business, right, then you don't know what your manager is doing. If you don't know anything about videography, then you don't know who's good or not. If you want to hire them or put them on your team, if you don't know anything about engineering, you're not really controlling the product that's exiting the studio with your name on it. So once you at least to an extent learn all these things, you can hold people accountable. You can pick the right people. You're spending your money wisely. You're not spinning your wheels. I've seen so many people spin their wheels. This week on The House Always Wins, carpentry and structures and two people who have never forgot to do their own home maintenance, John and Allie, explain what you should do to get your home ready for winter. I call it housework, cause it's light work. What you, what you done here? I'ma throw sheets, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework, 
Hey everyone, I'm John. And I'm Allie, and welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. Now that we're past summer's official end, uh, Labor Day, it's a good time to talk about what's next and how the listeners can prepare for it. I assume you mean that we won't be wearing our summer whites anymore. Ooh. Time to switch to those cozy fabrics and earth tones. Absolutely. I mean, sure. Why not? This is a, isn't a visual medium, so you, dear listeners, will have to take our word that fashion is kind of not in our lane. So, Allie, no, I thought we might discuss how to prepare the home for fall and winter. Oh, sure. Got it. All right. Yep. So... For example, yes. this is a good time to make sure your furnace is operating as you expect it to. Brilliant. Yes, furnace operating as expected. Check. So for about 200 bucks, uh, you can get a HVAC or a heating, ventilating, and air conditioning technician to come to your home and inspect your furnace or boiler. They'll be looking for cracks or flaws in the heat exchanger and taking an overall look at the whole furnace, looking at the blower. Um, they'll make sure if it has a pilot light, that's working correctly, or they'll turn it on and make sure everything is, is, is going like it's supposed to go. They'll check gas lines, make sure they're not leaking, leaking and that the thermostat is working correctly. They may even go so far as to check the temperature of the air that's coming out of the heat registers. Yep. And they're also going to go inside that furnace and uh, clean out parts that if you leave them dirty, they can lead to the premature failure. Oh, of the thing. there's there's lots of that. Yeah. So they'll clean or replace your furnace filter. But take note, yes. you know, you can replace your own furnace filter. Right. Uh, clean your own furnace filter. Um, in fact, you should be doing it four times a year. Yeah. If those filters get dirty, especially um, if you have hairy pets like i do what oh man same here oh my same, god exactly so one time i i kind of forgot about replacing furnace filters Ooh. for a while mm. and then one day the furnace wasn't working and <laughs> shocker I was, I was freaking out <laughs> thinking like oh here here's the ten thousand dollars i'm going to spend on a new furnace oh and god so i called the technician and she comes out and she's like this filter gets replaced once in a while <laughs> And, you're and like, it's working fine now. She's like, oh my God, I'm such a moron. Oh my God, that's embarrassing. Yeah, it was embarrassing. That, it, 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 wow. Yeah, that, I totally get that. I, uh, we've all had those moments. Uh, sheepish is the word that comes to mind there. Uh, we won't even go on and talk about how I once had to call a plumber because I might have forgot to turn off a hose bib and froze my exterior faucet, which is another awesome thing <laughs> you'll want to do before the temperatures are regularly below freezing. Shutting off your exterior water faucet or hose bib or whatever you want to call it. Uh, if it's forgotten, the water that's in the pipe can freeze, which, hey, in the winter, that's fine. It stays frozen. But once spring comes around and it starts to unfreeze, uh, it will start to spew all over because that frozen water expanded. And pipes don't like to expand, especially copper ones. Mm -hmm. And it'll crack and break and water will go spewing and it's quite exciting. Right. I mean, so the thing to remember is that as long as your hose bib is on, you know, the water supply is going to your hose bib, that right. water is like right there. Right there, ready it's to roll. It's basically outside. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and so since it's basically outside, if it's below freezing, it will eventually freeze. So if you have to turn it off, which you should, uh, in order to turn it off, find the supply to the hose bib. Go inside your home somewhere, probably down in the basement is where it'll be. Look for a shutoff valve. So what is that going to look like? Well, in most cases, it's either the, that round turn handle, like faucet handle you'll see 
metal one, or it might be a handle, a valve handle that's like a, a straight handle. You'll see one or the other, and you'll see them kind of back from where the hose bib goes shooting out of the house. Look for that. And of course, with the round handle, it's righty tighty, lefty loosey. And with the other handle, uh, shut off handle, you turn it um, basically so it's looks like it's going across the pipe, I guess. Perpendicular, perpendicular to the pipe. Perpendicular to the pipe, That's what yeah. I always say. That that's When it's running pipe. parallel to the pipe, that's Water's on. Flowing. And when it's perpendicular, it's off. Perfect. Exactly. And so you've turned off that you found that valve and you've turned it off. Check. Now you're going to go back outside and you're actually going to open the hose bib. Right. So you're going to kind of let out any leftover water that might be in there. Mm -hmm. And now it's empty. Yay. So now there's nothing to, in there to freeze. Excellent. Like I should have done that one time, but go You on. know, a related issue, one that I've had to address, and some listeners probably have similar situations, it's uninsulated water pipes, especially where they run on outside walls Ooh. or very near to exterior walls in a poorly insulated basement. Probably an older house, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the water pipes, that so they were inside the house, but they eventually froze just because they were so close to the exterior wall and the insulation was so lacking mm -hmm. that um, got quite cold down there. Uh, so that's another plumbing repair. Oh boy. So I assume you addressed that lack of insulation, right? Yep. You probably did it with what? Spray foam? I went with a less expensive method. I took styrofoam insulation. So the, the panels of styrofoam, cut those up to fit in between the floor uh, framing. Mm -hmm. And then I used the can, the great stuff, spray foam around each of those pieces of styrofoam. So it's a little bit less expensive than just foam. Right. Foam is quite expensive. It is. And then I also put, I insulated around my water pipes. I, I bought the, uh, they're just little pipe shaped pieces of foam. They yeah. just, they just cozy right oh, on up to your do. water pipes. They're so easy to install. I they're love them. They're so great easy fun. to install. And you know, before you install them, you can whack each other, you know, your friends and family with them because they're, they're great toys. Yes, indeed. Uh, another important maintenance item that homeowners should tackle in the coming months is cleaning out your gutters and making sure they are draining to the downspouts and everything's running where it's supposed to run away from the foundation. This is one of the single best things you can do to keep your basement from taking in water in the spring. Now, unless you have one of those leaf filtering systems installed, in which case, if you have that, you're golden. But otherwise, the rest of us um, got to get a ladder out and get up there and just haul all those yucky leaves that are gross and brown and toss them on out of there, do it, uh, doing it the manual style. So some people can do this themselves. Maybe you have a ladder, you have ability, you have the will. Uh, but just be clear, climbing ladders and cleaning out your gutters, not for everyone. Not for everyone. Uh, it definitely has led to a non-zero number of crashes. Non-zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there are companies you can call. They're often like landscaping companies or handy person businesses where mm -hmm. this is one of the services that they'll offer. Yeah. Uh, there could be money well spent for sure. Mm -hmm. If you do decide to clean on your own, just make sure you're being safe, hold a ladder. And quite frankly, unless you're really experienced with a ladder, it doesn't hurt to have someone holding your ladder and just kind of helping out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the very least, somebody else should know that you're doing this. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you phone a friend, you know, to let them know where you're exactly. going. Exactly. <laughs> Let's just give, you know, let the neighbor know what you're up to. Right. Okay. I mean, I actually, a neighbor once, I he was up on his roof and his ladder fell over and I was... I was just like, oh, hey, need a hand over there? <laughs> yeah, how's that going? 
Well, that's all we have time for today. So if you have any questions about home improvement, construction, or carpentry you'd like us to answer, drop us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. Until next time, remember to set a reminder to change or clean your furnace filter four times a year. Every change of season. Yep, exactly. And uh, and don't forget to turn off that water faucet. But I'm going to throw if I don't get paid for this housework. It's 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Object lessons is a practice dating back to the 1800s in which you look at history through objects. In this week's edition of Radio Chipstone, feature contributor Jennifer Fields talks with Sarah Ann Carter, the executive director at the Center for Design and Material Culture and the author of Object Lessons, How 19th Century Americans Learned to Make Sense of the Material World. The idea behind Object Lessons was that children would learn best through their senses, through what they could touch and feel and smell and taste, rather than just memorizing words or learning abstract ideas through language. The idea was that through engaging with actual material things, through engaging with the world around them, Children would learn how to think, how to reason, how to understand the world and their place in it, and not just parrot back things they had memorized, but to truly be thinking beings in the world. How were children guided through learning through these objects? As I talk about in the, the larger book about object lessons, there's a long history to this process and practice. But as it became used most commonly in the United States, in the second half of the 19th century, there was this five-step method that really was at the heart of the object lesson. The first step was observation, really engaging with a material thing, looking closely, touching it, having a full sensory experience of that object. The second step was thinking about objects for their qualities. What is a quality of this object? What makes this um, what it is? What, how do we describe this object through its material qualities? The next step might be, what are qualities of this thing that we can't get just through the senses? So perhaps you might start with a hunk of ginger and you understand its material qualities. You might describe its smell or its taste or what it feels like. But then in the next step, you begin to think about what are qualities we can't get at just through its physical nature. What are abstract qualities that we might bring to this object? The fourth step is really sorting, thinking about what category might this object fit into? How do we understand this object's place in the world? If we were starting with something like ginger, it would be perhaps a spice or a food or something from far away or something grown in a particular way. If it was something like a cloth, how is it made? What is it used for? We could begin to sort it in that way. And then finally, the fifth step of an object lesson was writing about it. So some of these early object lessons really became composition exercises that taught children how to go from object, from material thing, to idea. And so the object lesson process really helps us think about how things, how material things, really engage with histories of ideas and have their own intellectual history as well. So was this a radical idea for the time? And 
If so, what was, how did the public, how did the community welcome, did they welcome this idea or this pedagogy of teaching? The object lesson idea really grew out of 18th century European romantic pedagogy. So this idea that children were these feeling, sensing beings moving in the world. They weren't just beings to parrot back information. So you might think of someone like uh, Rousseau or Pestalozzi, who really, his writing really became the foundation. Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi's writing really became the foundation for object lessons. And Pestalozzi wrote about something called Anschauung Unterricht, which in German means sense perception exercises, this idea that you have to train children's senses. So initially, this was something that was pretty radical. It was a way of really thinking about how children were moving and feeling in the world. Then um, this method was taken up by... Um, a whole range of pedagogues in the 19th century, and then becomes really popular in the United States in the 1860s when it was adopted by a man named E.A. Sheldon who ran a normal school. And he realized that his students just weren't learning in a thorough way. He realized they were just learning for the test. They were not actually learning concepts, which is something that's pretty familiar to a lot of us today. Right? Children were just learning to pass these exams, but that doesn't mean they were understanding. And so Sheldon, who was interested in pedagogy, he was researching what was happening in the world and other places, decided to bring this method of object lessons to New York, to his normal school, to a school that was training teachers. And within that school that was training teachers, he trained teachers in this method. He brought a teacher who was a specialist in object lessons from England, to help him do that. And then those teachers who they trained brought the object lesson method to schools across the United States. So in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, as you begin to look through um, school reports, which are the documents of what's being taught in different schools, and I look through many for this book, you actually see object lessons, object study listed as subjects that students are studying and engaging with just as they're learning mathematics or reading. What would one of these lessons have looked like? So there were lots of ways that object lessons were brought into the classroom. So for example, you might start with um, something like sugar, might bring in um, a large chunk of sugar. And the idea would be students would have to engage with this material to try to understand it. They would look closely at it, they might taste it, they might smell it, touch it, understand it's something that crumbles, is it fusible, it burns, and these are actually, they're actually surviving lesson plans. And if you could imagine having, you know, a class of seven-year-olds tasting sugar, touching sugar, burning sugar, <laughs> smelling it, but really saying, what is this substance that I see every day? How does it work? How do I understand this? So getting the material qualities but then they would learn quite explicitly, where does this come from? Where did this grow? What kind of labor produced this? How did this get here? Learning that information from outside of that substance, right? Then they would sort it, figure out, well, what does this connect to? This is, yes, this is a food. This is a granular. Um, this is maybe imported. You know, what kind of labor practices are being used here? And then they would think about how, how could they write about it? how you would start from these material experiences with this sugar to actually writing a composition. And those earliest compositions were things that younger students, they would dictate to teachers who would write them on the board. And some of those compositions actually survive. Um, as students got older, they would do the writing themselves. 
But the idea here is that you would really start with a substance, whether it's something like sugar, it could also be a produced substance like a pair of scissors or a thimble, a piece of porcelain, it could be any range of fabrics, it could be a book, there are object lessons on books where children were taught not necessarily about what's in the book, but about the book as, as a material thing. How is it made? Where does it come from? What is this thing that I'm holding in my hand? And these lessons allowed children to really think about everything around them as having a story, as having a range of stories embedded in it, and to understand where those things come from and how those things were part of this complicated world in which they were living in. So was there any pushback to this method? There was. There were um, some educators who thought that and the object lesson method was just another form of memorization. They thought that children aren't really engaging with these material things. They're just memorizing words to connect to these objects. But of course, that might be, that might be a case in which an object lesson isn't being used well, right? Um, so that, that critique is out there for any pedagogical method that, in fact, students aren't really learning. But it's hard to assess learning in the historic classroom, just as it's hard to really assess learning in our own classrooms in the 21st century. Some of those critiques might be valid, but the method was incredibly successful in terms of how quickly it spread through the country. And we also see its success in the way that the object lesson idea becomes a key part of the way 19th century Americans talk about, um, talk about the meanings objects have in terms of things like the tariff debates of the 1890s, for example. The object lesson idea is part of the way people talk about those commodities and their histories. The object lesson idea becomes a key way to talk about museums, it becomes a key way to talk about objects for sale in department stores. There are ads which feature object lessons as a way to understand the meaning of a commodity or a material thing. So while it's difficult to assess how that lesson might have been successful for any particular student, it becomes a key way 19th century Americans talk about material things, really talk about this very material world of the late 19th century. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporters this evening were Mike Moen and Sarah Gabler on special assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, Ali Barini, and John Stephanie, and Jennifer Fields. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to subscribe to the WORT Local News Podcast. Never miss an episode. Up next is a perpetual notion machine. Thanks for listening, and good night. Good night.